You must know the times. Answers to 25 essential questions on end times prophecy. A powerful new book by Dennis James Woods. Wildfires, earthquakes, hurricanes, and floods that devastates entire communities. Global pandemics that kills hundreds of thousands of people. Social injustice, unrest, and lawlessness that threatens our societies. Where is this world heading? And what does the Bible say about the end times? You Must Know the Times is an eye-opening book specifically designed to educate readers about the last days. You will learn what the Bible says about conflicts in the Middle East, the Tribulation Period, the Nation of Israel, the Mark of the Beast, the Antichrist, Armageddon, the Rapture of the Church, and many more essential topics. Get your copy today of You Must Know the Times by Dennis James Woods at Amazon, iTunes, Google Books, Barnes & Noble, or wherever books are sold. Praise the Lord, everyone out there in podcast land. This is Dr. Dennis James Woods, and we're here with you one more time with the Revelation Revolution. Ladies and gentlemen, do not touch that dial. Get your Bible, get your pencil, your paper, your highlighter, so you can take copious notes and study along with us. Glory to God, because we're going to be breaking it down. I'm going to go back to the beginning and start talking about why some of the most fundamental aspects of pre-tribulationism, ladies and gentlemen, do not stand on solid biblical ground. You are not going to miss, want to miss this episode of the Revelation Revolution. Praise the Lord, everyone out there. This is Dr. Dennis James Woods, and we're um, so excited to be back with you on the Revelation Revolution. Uh, I was talking to some of my listeners, or one of my dear listeners, uh, who uh, gives me feedback about our broadcast, our podcast, and uh, one of the things I told them that I was going to do was maybe go back from the beginning and just start giving some perspective on where it is that we're coming from. But let me engage you for a moment. And I just just want you to come along with me on a little journey. The time is somewhere in the not too distant future. There's all sorts of turmoil going on all over the world. There's things that's happening in the body of Christ. 
it seems that more and more loose lifestyles are becoming the norm the compromise is all over the place racism is rampant prosperity gospels are opted for very little teaching on Christian living and holiness and all of that is being taught in churches churches are more of about social outreach and programs than they are about saving souls and in the world around us this political upheaval nation rising against nation all sorts of things going on perilous times have gripped the countries and the, uh, uh, the cities of the nations around the world perilous times have gripped all of those nations there's all sorts of international tension in the cosmos and the weather there's all sorts of strange things happening, strange sightings, fearful sightings in the heaven, weather patterns changing, things getting more severe, earthquakes, volcanoes happening. All of these things are going on. And ladies and gentlemen, these things, all of these things have been happening. There have been great massive earthquakes, there have been great volcanoes, there have been great tidal waves. These things have gone on, but... People still living day by day, by and by. Living, working, giving in marriage. Partying, working, worshiping, whatever. All over the world, life continues and the world slowly turns. And then all of a sudden, there is some rumbling in the Middle East and this rumbling is centered around talk of a new peace treaty between Israel and all of the nations around and then all of a sudden the peace treaty is announced. But even before that, let me just throw this in. Israel starts building a temple. They start building a temple. Of course, we were always told that that temple wouldn't be built until Daniel's 70th week, but these are all theories and none of us have a crystal ball where we can gauge into the future but Israel has broken ground for their temple take some years to get it temple could be in place already and then a peace agreement happens or maybe maybe the temple is built during the peace agreement but the, the, well, the main issue I'm getting to is a seven year treaty has been cut but instead of a lot of Christians 
being happy in this scenario that I'm giving you Christians have fallen into a state of panic and the reason why they've fallen in a state of panic is is because all along all their lives their mothers, their grandfathers, their pastors, their prophets and teachers have all told them that the church would be gone when this covenant is signed. They were all taught that before these things even come to pass, the church would be gone. But yet, here the seven-year covenant has been signed, and the church is not gone. And so, panic sets in. Uncertainty sets in. Because now, Christians have begun to become persecuted. Things have changed on the earth. Now being a Christian, there's a price on your head. The seven year covenant is signed. The temple mount is going. The animal sacrifice has started. And the one of the people, there were several people that backed the covenant, but there was one particular person who strengthened or backed, or as Daniel 9.27 say, says, he will confirm a covenant with many. He doesn't say he'll sign it. He confirms it. He backs it. He strengthens it. The guy that's going to become the Antichrist, the guy, he isn't the Antichrist yet, though. He won't be the Antichrist until half Three and a half years later, he'll become the Antichrist. He isn't yet, though. The track contract is signed. Peace in the Middle East now comes. But Christians are freaking out. And then one day, the guy that was peaceful, that promised with a global international agenda of bringing the, uh, the world under one united worldwide government worldwide banking all of that stuff the guy that talked all the promise now that Israel's peace treaty has been signed and all of that now that it seems to be some stability in the Middle East as time ticks, ebbs closer and closer to that mid part, that three and a half year part of that seven year period, as it ebbs closer, this guy keeps talking and talking and promising the world. And then one day, he walks into the most holy place of that temple sits on the throne of God 
and declares himself to be God. Again, Christians are freaking out because under the pre-trib scenario, they which they should have been gone. Like the way that Hal Lindsey and Dr. Walvoord and Dr. Pentecost and Tim LaHaye and Jack Van Ampey and all of these other pre-trib people, the way they have been putting this down our throats all of this time is the church would be gone. And come to find out, ladies and gentlemen, that was all a smokescreen. It was all a pipe dream. Now, Christians have a price on their head. And because many of those Christians were superficial Christians in the first place, because it's easy to be a Christian when there's no persecution. It's easy to be a Christian when you live in a country that has everything. Where uh, our bums in the United States have, have, have multi-million dollar missions they can go in and live in and eat, go get drunk all day and then come back and sleep. Our poor people here, there are poor people in the world that would trade places with them in a minute. But now, ladies and gentlemen, something's happened. Christians have a price on their head. Real Christians are being killed for their faith. And the superficial Christians are abandoning ship left and right. Especially when it was told to them that they would not be able to buy or sell without the mark of the beast. And a massive falling away occurs because untold millions of people who have been told all their lives that they would not be here find themselves in the midst of a period that the Bible says was not since the beginning of the world nor shall ever be. I know in the movies, the in the pre-trib scenario, since the rapture happens before all the trouble happens or before the Daniel 70 week starts, the church is gone. And so it catches the world by surprise. See, this is this is the scenario that the movies left behind and the books left behind. And the and the and this is the narrative that has been put out 
all of these years. You know, there's going to be Christian pilots and they're going to be flying planes and all of a sudden the plane's going to crash because they're going to disappear. There's going to be people riding in the trains. There's going to be people riding in the cars. All sorts of things are going to happen. Doctors are going to disappear mid-surgery and, you know, people, cab drivers are going to disappear. All this type of thing. All this stuff is going to happen. It's going to throw the entire planet into chaos because the Christians are just taken all of a sudden. No one's expecting it because the 70th week of Daniel hasn't gotten here yet and according to pre-trib we just have to disappear right before that period happens well the problem is in the pre well with the pre-trib scenario then you would have a chaotic world like I say the Christian pilot is gone plane crashes so you would have all of this upheaval because all the true Christians were taken and everybody else was left behind. Okay? But that's in the pre-trib scenario. You see, ladies and gentlemen, if the pre-trib scenario is correct, then fine. We're all gone. I mean, who's going to argue with that, right? I'll, I'll be glad to get in heaven and apologize and say, oops, I, had it, I got it wrong. But ladies and gentlemen, what if pre-trib is wrong? You see, anytime you have masses of people believing in one thing or another, usually the masses are wrong. You know, there was a lot of myste a mystery concerning the Jesus and his first coming. You know, the, the, the scripture said he would be born in Bethlehem. I think in Micah five three, you know, at Bethlehem, you would be, you know, you, you you he would be born there, okay. And maybe there was some scholars trying to figure out, well, how would he how would he be born in Bethlehem, and how would he get to Bethlehem? There's no one that could have predicted. No one would have predicted how God fulfilled that. We keep forgetting that we have a God that can fulfill prophecy and use every and have everything that's in the created universe at his disposal to bring it about. God can use a mosquito biting somebody. God can use a bird. God can send a windstorm. God can send a snowstorm. God can send an earthquake and change the course of history and nobody could calculate that. The, the interventions and how God's do, how God does things are incalculable because the Bible says his ways are not our ways. His thoughts are not our thoughts as the heaven is higher than the earth. So is his thoughts and his ways above ours. Paraphrase. And so, no one could have predicted that the reason why Jesus would be born in Bethlehem is not because Mary and Joseph grew up there, um, or, 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 or Mary and Joseph were there already. No, it would be because Augustus Caesar would declare a tax and a census and it caused everybody to go to their town of birth to be registered in a census. Now you couldn't have got that from Micah, reading Micah. 
There's no way you could have calculated that. In other words, ladies and gentlemen, when God fulfills prophecy, he has everything in creation at his disposal. And he can use anything he wants. That means human beings cannot figure him out. One of the main problems with pre-trib, and we're going to get into the doctrinal. Ladies and gentlemen, this might be one of the most important messages that you ever listen to concerning the rapture. But ladies and gentlemen, there is our abs there's absolutely no way, no human being can calculate how God is going to move. And that's the problem with pre-trib. They got this thing so scripted. They've got the Lord so scripted that they're telling you exactly what's going to happen. How it's going to happen here, how it's going to happen here, and all of that. But ladies and gentlemen, when have the masses of people ever been right? It's like Paul says in 1 Corinthians, had the princes of this world known, they would have not have crucified Christ. The problem is, they didn't know. And ladies and gentlemen, Neither do any of us know exactly how things are going to go down. We don't know how God is going to fulfill a lot of what Revelation talks about. So what do men do? Men are good at creating their own doctrines and commandments of men. Now, let me just say this. In my first book, Unlocking the Door to Key to Biblical Prophecy, hopefully I'll be able to get another version of it out uh, through my own publishing company uh, sometime in 2019. I don't know. I don't know what this is. We just in the beginning of the year, it's been already been a lot of things nobody was able to, and my family was able to predict as it has already happened. But uh, so we, so I don't know. But that's 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 my plan. But in my first book, Unlocking the Door to Key Biblical Prophecy, I have actually have a piece in there called Modern Day Thessalonians. Now, what do I mean by? modern day Thessalonians what I mean is this we believe that 2nd Thessalonians was written because someone had under the guise of apostolic authority had written a letter to that congregation suggesting that the tribulation or the persecution that they were going through because they were suffering severe persecution that they were going through at the time was because they had already entered into the day of the Lord. And the theory goes, the theory goes, 
because many of them felt that they were in the day of the Lord already, that obviously that they had already missed the second coming of the Lord because God had already said in first uh first Thessalonians chapter five verses nine that we're not appointed to wrath, and the wrath of God is synonymous with the term the day of the Lord, okay. So, with that happening, great consternation broke out amongst many of the congregates. They were suffering, they were backsliding, they were giving up hope, they were defecting for the faith. You know, all of the things that would happen if you thought you missed the rapture. So, the point I'm making is, ladies and gentlemen, we've already seen this in history. We've already seen this before. This phenomena existed. And this phenomena will happen again. Because number one, pre-trib teaches that the entire 70th week of Daniel is the wrath of God. The whole thing is the day of the Lord. Which is not the case. It's not the case. But that's how they teach it. And so, since they teach all of Daniel's 70th week is, is a seven-year tribulation, since they teach that, they say the rapture has to happen before the seven-year tribulation. Now, that is a theory, ladies and gentlemen. It hasn't happened yet. All of, all of what we're teaching are theories. They're all theories. What I teach, everybody's got a theory. Why? Because it hasn't happened. It hasn't happened. So, everybody's theory is a theory it's an opinion it's what we think might happen okay but we don't know we're just gray matter brain human beings that have to put our pants on one leg at a time a puff of smoke a vapor that's here today gone tomorrow like a flower that rises up and by the evening is gone that's what we are mere men human beings so we don't know. But here's what happened before. We saw what happened to the Thessalonians when they believed they entered into the day of the Lord. Pre-trib is setting the exact same scenario to happen again. Why? Because they teach that the entire 70th week of Daniel is the wrath of God. And because they teach that, when the things that happen at the beginning of the week start happening, and the church is still here, they're going to be in the same situations the Thessalonians were in Second Thessalonians when they believed they too had entered into the day of the Lord because that's what it'll mean. If you're pre-trib and you're here during Daniel 70 week, you have entered into the wrath of God and you have missed the rapture. Well, that scenario is going to repeat itself again. It's going to happen again because pre-trib says, oh, we're gone we're not going to be here. We're gone and all the jets are going to fall and the world's going to be thrown into chaos because all the goody people, all the Christians are going to be snatched away. Well, ladies and gentlemen, what if it doesn't go down that way? 
if it doesn't go down that way, then millions of Christians will still be here who thought they were supposed to be gone and faced with persecution, not being able to buy a sale and all of that. What Paul predicted in 2 Thessalonians, there is going to come first a great falling away. Now, this falling away could happen over time. Uh, there's room for that people to be siphoned off as the church compromises, as the world gets more secular, as the church gets more secular, as the church gets more self-centered and self-seeking and materialistic. And, and, and you only have people that are Christians by 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 uh, a name and name only. Glory to God. It could happen that way. But I believe there's going to be a more pronounced circumstance that's going to catch people flat-footed who thought they were supposed to be gone and are going to still be here. And it's going to set up a scenario for people to fall away because of the persecution that's coming. Particularly in uh, places like America where Christians haven't gone through hardly anything like that is going to be devastating. But this is the type of torture and persecution that the first, second, third century Christians put, lived with on a daily basis. And these people were just as much part of the body of Christ as we are today. All you have to do is read Fox's Book of Martyrs. Or even what Jesus told the church at Pergamos. He said, Satan's going to throw some of you into prison. He said, but be faithful unto death and I will give you the crown of life. Jesus didn't say, oh, I'm, I'm going to come get, spring you out of jail like I did Peter. He didn't say that. Faithful unto death. In the Greek word, in the Greek martus, in the English it can be translated either witness or martyr. Martyrs are the most profound witnesses. Before I take my text, let me tell you about a young man by the name of Germanicus. Germanicus, and I have to do it off of memory because I don't have the notes directly in front of me. But in Fox, Fox's Book of Martyrs, they say Germanicus is, is right close to where we find the uh, persecution of Polycarp. And let me, let me, let me find it real quick because I, I think this is just so profound. Um... It is just so, so, so profound. Uh, let me get to it. Looking for polycarp. Well, I don't want to take a lot of time trying to find it. Let me see. Anyway, 
Polycarp, uh, there was a young man right in the same area uh, in Fox's Book of Martyrs that was martyred and his name was Germanicus. This is what it says of Germanicus. They said he was a true Christian. He was a young man. They said that he faced the horrible persecutions and tortures to such a degree without wavering faith that many of the pagans that watched him die gave their lives to the Lord. Now, ladies and gentlemen, that is powerful. This is why martyrs were called witnesses. And this is why Jesus talked about it. He said, you know, my faithful martyr. My faithful martyr. Glory to God. Who in front of people with wagging tongues, bloodthirsty dogs that went through and watched the torture of countless Christians while they ate popcorn. Ladies and gentlemen, this is definitely the history and the foundation of the church. These were Christians. Now again, I know, I know, here in America, we're not used to this. We just think everything's going to be hunky-dory. You get saved and oh, hallelujah. You just have a hallelujah life. God is my friend. He's the good man upstairs. I just clap my hands and praise him. He just drops me stuff like I'm a trained seal at a circus. You know how those seals balance stuff on their nose and clap their little fin legs and all that. Then the, then the trainer throws them a fish. That's how we treat God. We're the, we're the seal clapping and we entertain God enough by all of this. He'll just throw us a little fish. And we have this like transactional relationship with God. God, you do something for me, I'll do something for you. And you keep doing something for me and I'll do something for you. And you know, we got this thing going on. The Christianity of, the, of today, ladies and gentlemen, would be foreign, very much so, to first century Christians. And so we've got this whole scenario set up. We're all going to be just everything's going to be going on. And all of a sudden, jets are going to fall out of the sky. Cars are going to crash because the Christians are going to be taken for the world. People's clothes are going to be left in piles and all of that stuff, you know, and all that goes on and blah, 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 blah. And then the tribulation happens because all of the of, of, of the good Christians are just going to be taken. And then God going to break off the world and his wrath. And then we and then seven years later we come back and fight in the battle of Armageddon. 
Well, that's how pre-trib has it. But what if pre-trib is wrong? That's the question. So, enough with my preliminary marks, remarks. Let's break it down. If you will, let's turn our attention to 2 Thessalonians chapter number 2. But even before we, we get there, let me just say this. This is what Jesus said in Matthew 15, 6 through 9. Thus have ye made the commandments of God none effect by your tradition. In vain do they worship me, teaching for the doctrines and the commandments of men. I want you to listen to that. Doctrines and commandments of men can make the word of God none effect. Because we love our doctrines. We love our pet doctrines. We love them. We create them in our schools. We teach them in our universities. We inculcate people with them in our seminaries. And they imbibe the doctrinal, theological, philosophical concepts. And then they live it out through their, through their Christian life just as they were taught in school. So he that writes the books controls the narrative. He that controls the narrative controls how people think. Now, this is what Jesus said. But in many cases, by doing so, you make the word of God none effect keeping your own doctrines and commandments of man. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 verses 1 through 8. I'm going to read the entire phrase of passage and then we're going to break it down. Now we beseech you, brethren, by the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and by our gathering together unto him, that ye not be soon shaken in mind, nor be troubled, neither by spirit, nor by word of God, nor by letter as from us, as the day of Christ is at hand. Let no man deceive you by any means, for that day should not come except there come a falling away first. And the man of sin be revealed, the son of perdition, who opposeth and exalts himself above all that is called God or that is worship, so that he as God sitteth in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. Remember ye not that when I was yet with you, I told you these things? And now ye know what withholdeth that he might be revealed in his time. 
for the mystery of iniquity doeth already work only he who now letteth will let until he be taken out of the way and then that wicked be revealed whom the Lord shall consume with the spirit of his mouth and shall destroy with the brightness of his coming. Second Thessalonians chapter number two verses one through eight. Now here it is said Let no man deceive you by any means. For that day shall not come except there come a falling away first. Now remember in my uh, introductory remarks we were talking about what I believe is going to contribute to that falling away. Okay, so I won't belabor that right here. There's another thing. And the man of sin, meaning the Antichrist, be revealed. The son of perdition, who opposeth and exalts himself above all that is called God or that is worshipped, so that he as God sitteth in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. That's the abomination of desolation. That's when the Antichrist walks into the most holy place. He, he also, Paul doesn't get into this here, but Revelation 13 does. They're going to make a statue to the image of the beast, all of that, and erect a statue in the uh, most holy place. And then uh, 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 the Antichrist is going to uh, walk in and sit on what we call basically really the mercy seat, but that's really the throne of God that's in the, uh, under the uh, tabernacle and the Ark of the Covenant, you had the two archangels whose wings pointed in towards the throne of God and the Spirit of God hovered over what was called the mercy seat. Glory to God. But that's the seat, the place of propitiation. That is the place of God's mercy. He so Santa Christ walks into that temple, calls himself God. That is the abomination of desolation. That's when Jesus said, when you see that, those of you that are in Judea, flee. Glory to God. But then he says there's something else. For that day shall not come, except there come a falling away first, and a man of sin be revealed, the son of perdition, who opposeth and exalts himself above all that is called God, or that is worshipped, so that he as God sitteth in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. Remember ye not that when I was yet with you, I told you these things. And now you know what withholdeth. The Greek word there is ketcho. What restrains. And now you know what withholdeth. This I'm reading for the King James. That he may be revealed in his time. For the mystery of iniquity already doeth already work. Only he who now restraineth, or he who now letteth, will let until he be taken out of the way. Okay, now, let me, let me read this uh, from... Let me hop, let me hop to the uh, NIV. 
Glory to God. Uh, let's see, Second Thessalonians. Let me get that real quick. All right. Verse number seven, NIV, for the secret power of lawlessness is already at work, but the one who now holds, holds it back will continue to do so until he is taken out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will overthrow with the breath of his mouth and destroy his splendor by his coming. Okay, let's, uh, let's read that also in the NASB. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains will do so until he's taken out of the way. Okay, now. The question is, who is the restrainer? That's the question. Paul does not say here who the restrainer is. And the reason why he doesn't say it, because he said it in the other verses. He said, when I was with you, I already told you. I already told you who this is. So now, we in modern day Christendom, we have to fill in the gaps. We got to figure it out. That's what we have to do. We have to, we have to figure this out. Okay? So, pre-trib says... That the one who is now withholding the Antichrist is the Holy Spirit. Said so it's the Holy Spirit that's restraining him. And if the Holy Spirit has to be taken out of the way, the Holy Spirit is in the church. So that means if the Holy Spirit has to be gone before the Antichrist can be revealed and they say he's revealed at the beginning of Daniel's 70th week because he has to sign the covenant even though the word revealed there doesn't mean show up it means uncover he's not uncovered until the middle of the week but that's just a footnote we'll get back to that he has to be removed this he whatever he is has to be removed. That's the one who's restraining the revealing of the Antichrist and that has to be taken out of the way or removed before the Antichrist can be revealed. So they say, who then is the he? Because Paul didn't say who the he was. So, this is what pre-trib did. They said, okay, well, let's do some investigative work here. And let's look at who we think this could be. So, they go down through some historic interpretations. Number one, the restrainer is the Roman Empire. Eh. Well, the Roman Empire was out of control and, I mean, been, been out of power for <laughs> centuries. <laughs> so, can't be the Roman Empire. The second thing they came up with, maybe it's the Jewish state. Uh, I don't know about that one either. 
Number three, Satan. Well, they say, well, Satan's not going to restrain Satan. Then they go, number four, the principle of law and order found in human government. Hmm. Nah, that doesn't work. Five, God. Six, the Holy Spirit. And seven, the true church as indwelt by the Spirit. Now I'm reading, I'm, what I'm do, doing here is I'm reading from the Believer's Commentary, but I also use a lot of John MacArthur, so I'm just using one of these because it's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a dispensational source. Now this is what they say. The Holy Spirit indwelling the church and the, in, and the individual believer seems to fit the description of the restrainer more completely and accurately than any of the others. Just as the restrainer is spoken of as something and someone in this chapter, so the spirit is spoken of in John as both neuter, Holy Spirit, and masculine, he. So ladies and gentlemen, I need you to understand what pre-trip teaches now. First of all, let's go back. Paul didn't say who the restrainer was. Now this is important. This is important that you understand this fundamental fact. Paul didn't say. Okay, so since he didn't say, theologians have proposed who it possibly could be. One, the Roman Empire. Two, the Jewish state. Satan, the principle of law and order and human government. God, God, the Holy Spirit. Or the one they opt for, the Holy Spirit and the church. But where did this idea come from? Because that's not what it says in the Bible. So this idea comes from what the commentator with John MacArthur and all of them say the same thing. The Holy Spirit indwelling the church and the individual believer seems to fit the description of the restrainer more completely and accurately than any of the others. Well, the others they proposed was the Roman Empire, the Jewish state, Satan, the principle of law, uh, an order in human government, God, God and the, uh, the Holy Spirit by himself and the Holy Spirit and the church. So these are, the, this is, listen, ladies and gentlemen, they are the ones who propose these things. And then the last one they throw in as the Holy Spirit and the church. But this is their conjecture. This it's not that the Bible said that. And this is what a lot the average person that believes pre-trip, they don't understand that this concept is based off of a theological 
conjecture of who this restrainer is. You have to understand that. There is no scriptures that say it's the Holy Spirit. This is men saying, well, who else could it be? Now, the proof text that they use, I'm reading from the Believer's Commentary. Again, the Holy Spirit indwelling the church and the individual believers seems to fit the description of the, restra of the restrainer more completely and accurate than, than any of the others. In other words, he said, it seems to do it more accurately than the others. In other words, we don't have anything definite to say this, but it, this seems to work. All right, this is what he's saying. Just as the restrainer is spoken of as something or someone in this chapter, so is the Spirit spoken of in John. Then he uses, this is, this is their proof text for the Holy Spirit now. I'm going to read them, and then we're going to read each one of these passages. John 14, 26. John 15, 26. John 16 and 8. 13 and 14 as both neuter talking about the Holy Spirit being referred to in the masculine gender him he, he that type of thing uh, neuter the Holy Spirit and masculine he as early as Genesis 6 3 the Holy Spirit is spoken of in connection with the restraint of evil okay let's look at Genesis 6 3 this is what Genesis 6 3 says and the Lord said my spirit shall not always strive with man for that he is flesh yet his days shall be 120 years now somehow they get that the Holy Spirit is restraining evil here from that text well if that was the case and the Holy Spirit was restraining evil I don't think God would have needed to flood the world right if, if, the Holy, if this text meant that the Holy Spirit was restraining evil then why did God flood the world this text says nothing about the Holy Spirit restraining evil it says nothing about that ladies and gentlemen the fact is, the wickedness was so bad on the earth that God had to kill everything. Except for everything that made it on the boat. That means cows, turtle doves, giraffes, alligators, turtle doves, whatever, all of them. And the people. How do you get God restraining evil from Genesis 6 3 I didn't say that they did let's go to the next text John 14 26 this is what it says but the comforter which is the Holy Ghost whom the Father will send in my name he shall teach you all things and bring all things to your remembrance whatsoever I have said unto you now this has nothing to do with restraint Okay, nothing to do with the Antichrist, nothing to do with eschatology, nothing to do with restraint of evil. But the point they're making here is, is the Holy Spirit was referred to as he. Now, these are their proof texts. Okay, all right, let's go to the next one. John fifteen twenty six. But the comforter. But when the Comforter is come, whom I will send to you from the Father, even the Spirit of Truth, which proceeded from the Father, he shall testify of me. Again, they're showing the use of the masculine pronoun he. 
Okay. Again, does this does this text have anything to do with the Antichrist? Does it have anything to do with end time prophecy? Does it have anything to do with the restraint of evil? Does it have anything to do with apocalyptic literature? No. <laughs> One of the first rules you learn in hermeneutics: stick to the genre, stick to the topic, stick to the text. Come on. All right. The next proof text. John 16, 8. And when he come, he will reprove the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. Masculine pronoun again. Uh, John 16, 7 through 11. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It, expedient, it is expedient for you that I go away. For if I go not away, the comforter would not come to you. But if I depart, I will send him. Use of the masculine pronoun referring to the Holy Spirit unto you. And when he is come, he will reprove the world of sin. Again, the use of the masculine pronoun he to show that the Holy Spirit is called a he sometime. Remember that trying to connect this use of he and John with Paul's use in 2 Thessalonians talking about he who now let it. Remember, they had to try to connect the dots. Who is this he? Because Paul, uh, Paul didn't say. So now this is theologian. This is pre-tribs, right? They're trying to put make an argument here. Alright, let's go to the next proof text. Then they use John, uh, 1 John 4 and 4. Ye are of God, little children, ye have overcome him, because greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. This has nothing to do with the restraint of evil, nothing to do with Antichrist, nothing to do with apocalyptic literature, nothing to do with the restraint of evil. None of these texts. Here's the, here's the best one they have. Isaiah 59, 19b. So when they shall fear the name of the Lord from the west, and his glory from the rising of the sun, when the enemy shall come in like the flood, the spirit of the Lord shall lift up a standard against him. That's in the King James. Lift up a standard. So, so, so what, what you're getting here from the King James translation is the evil is going to come in and the Holy Spirit lifts up a standard. In other words, the Holy Spirit is kind of like sitting there blocking the flood from coming through. And that's the Holy Spirit doing that. But ladies and gentlemen, this is ridiculous. I'm going to tell you why it's ridiculous because that this translation only works in the King James. The word for lift up the standard is nus or noose. And what it means is to flee away. It's translated one time. It, 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 it's used 142 times to flee. It's used 12 times to flee away. It's only used one time as lift up a standard, and that's the verse. The primitive root of flit, it, it means to vanish away, to abate away. It means display, to put to flight. Okay? It does not mean restrain. It's two different things. Two different things. If I repel somebody and turn them around, that's one thing. If I put a set of handcuffs on them and restrain them, that's another thing. Ask a police officer, is somebody running from him the same thing as him restraining him? It's not the same thing. Besides, listen how this reads in the NIV and the NASB. From the west, the people will fear the name of the Lord, and from the rising of the sun, they will reverse his glory, revere his glory, excuse me. For he will come like a pent up flood that the breath of the Lord drives along. 
That's how that should be interpreted. The breath of the Lord drives along. Now that's completely different than restrain, ladies and gentlemen. That ain't restraining. That the breath of the Lord drives along. Come on, that's not restraining. Okay, uh, let's look at it in in, in ASB. So when they fear the name of the Lord from the from the west and his glory from the rising of the sun, for he will come like a rushing stream, which the wind of the Lord drives. But they love the King James translation, who in that one instance with that Hebrew word translates it, lift up a standard. And lift up the standard in the mind of somebody speaking English is like, oh, we threw up a bulwark or something. But what the word really means is to drive along. Ladies and gentlemen, I just read to you the proof text that pre-trib uses to prove that the he of Second Thessalonians is the Holy Spirit. Now, I know there's some of you out there calling, come on now, Dr. Woods. Now, you can't, you, you can't set pre-trib out there like that and say that's their evidence. Ladies and gentlemen, if I'm lying, I'm flying. Now, my mom used to say that. If I'm lying, I'm flying. I'm reading to you from their very own theological positions and the text proofs that they use to prove that point. And this, ladies and gentlemen, is extremely flimsy. This is the proof text that they use. This is the proof text. Let me ask you some questions. Let me go back over this again. The proof text they use is Genesis 6-3. Has nothing to do uh, John 14-26. John 15-26. John 16-8. John 16-7-11. First John 4 and 4, Isaiah 59, 19b. Those are their proof texts to prove that the he of 2 Thessalonians is the Holy Spirit. Now, let me ask you this questions again. Do any of these passages have anything to do with the Antichrist? No. Do any of these passages have anything to do with end time prophecy? No. Do any of these passages have anything to do with the restraining of the Antichrist? No. The reason why the scriptures are used is because the Holy Spirit is called a he. That's as close as they could get to it, ladies and gentlemen. Isaiah 59b does not support the restraining ministry of the Holy Spirit if you read it in other versions. However, they do not use key passages about the Antichrist in Revelation. Now, here is the issue, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> If you're talking about the Antichrist and what's restraining him, wouldn't it make sense to go to the parts of the Bible that's talking about the Antichrist? 
Now, you don't need to be have a master's degree in hermeneutics to figure that out. Why in the world are you going way back to Genesis 6-3 to try to prove that? Why in the world are you using John's use of the masculine pronoun to try to typecast that, project that on to what Paul was talking about in 2 Thessalonians? Why would you try to use Isaiah 59-9b knowing that that translation, that scripture only gets close to trying to work if you use a King James Bible, which most preacher, well, a lot of preacher people do use a King James, but I'm just saying, the ones that like write a lot of these commentaries, they don't. Like MacArthur doesn't use a King James. He uses an NASB. But, but the point is, why are you not going to the passages of scripture that deal specifically with the Antichrist. And the next question is, is there any scriptures in the Bible that give us solid clues as to who this restrainer is? Because in the final analysis, Pre-Trib said, the He is the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit has to be taken away before the Antichrist can be revealed. Pre-trib teaches the Antichrist will be revealed at the beginning of the 70th week when he signs that peace covenant. So I want you to understand the logic now because if you, if you understand the logic, then you'll be able to follow me when I begin to walk you through the Bible to show you who this restrainer is infallible proof not taking scriptures that have nothing to do with the end time prophecy nothing to do with apocalyptic literature nothing to do with the antichrist nothing to do with the restraining of the antichrist all of those texts have nothing to do with that nothing first of all you need to understand before you can understand what's restraining the antichrist you have to understand what is the Antichrist. That's what you have to understand. What is the Antichrist? Or who is the Antichrist? There are three aspects of the beast. Now we're going to use the synonymous term for Antichrist. The beast. That's what uh, the revelation used the Greek word there is therion it means a wild venomous beast to be destroyed the other word is zoan where we get our English word zoo there are three aspects of the beast and first of all we're going to start with the first two first of all there is the kingdom of the beast the kingdom of the beast. If we go quickly to Revelation 13 verses 1 and 2, we'll see the kingdom of the beast. Let 
I'm going to read from the, let's go to the New King James. Then I stood upon the sand of the sea, and I saw a beast rising up out of the sea, having seven heads and ten horns. And on his horns ten crowns. And on his heads a blasphemous name. Now the beast which thou saw was like a leopard. His feet were like the feet of a bear. His mouth like the mouth of a lion. And the dragon gave him his power, his throne, and great authority. So now we see that the dragon or Satan gave him his throne, his political seat, great authority, his political and military power. The ten crowns, okay, let's go to Revelation 17, okay, all right, verse number nine, here is the mind that have wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman sits. There are also seven kings. Listen to this now. Five are fallen. One is. The other one is not yet come. And when he come, he must continue a short space. Okay. So now, and then verse 12. The ten horns which you saw are ten kings who have received no kingdom of you as of yet, but they will receive authority one hour with the beast. And these are one mind and they will give their power and authority to the beast. So we see that the beast is a kingdom. It is a confederation of ten kings. Okay, ten kingdoms, and through these ten kingdoms, they all give their power to the beast. He consolidates that power into one kingdom under him. So you have the kingdom of the beast. That is the first aspect. Then you have the human dictator, the beast. Okay, let's go to, let's hop to the uh, Old Testament, and let's go to Daniel 7, verse 8. Daniel 7, verse 8. This is what he says. All right. Ver let's actually start with verse 7. After this, I saw... Let me just go back to the first verse, because uh, I, I want to I show you this. It says, in the first year of Belshazzar, the king of Babylon, Daniel had a dream and visions upon his head while on his bed. And he wrote down the dream, telling, telling the main facts. Daniel spoke, saying, I saw my night vision. Behold, four great winds of the heavens were stirring upon the great sea. The four great beasts came up from the sea, each different one from another. The first one was like a lion. It had eager's wings. And I watched until its wings were plucked off and was lit excuse me, was lifted up from the earth and made to stand on a two feet like a man and a man's heart was given to it. And suddenly there came up another beast, unlike a bear. Okay? It would raise up on one side. It had three ribs in its mouth um, and between its teeth. And they said thus to it, Rise, devour much flesh. After this I looked and I saw there was another, like a leopard, 
and it had on its back four wings of a bird and the beast had four heads and dominion was given unto it after this in the night vision I saw the fourth beast dreadful and terrible exceedingly strong it had a huge iron teeth and it was devouring and breaking into pieces and trampling the residue with his feet it was different from all the other beasts before it for it had ten horns see there's that ten horns again and I was considering the horns and there was another little horn a little one coming up among them whom before three of the first horns were plucked up by the roots and there in this horn were the eyes like a eyes of a man and a mouth speaking great pompous words okay so now we're talking about the human monarch this is the eyes of a man and a mouth that blasphemes God so now we're looking at the human monarch okay so then if we uh, uh, continue down to verses 24 and 25 of the same chapter in Daniel this is what it says the ten horns are ten kings who shall arise from this kingdom and another shall arise after them he shall be different from the first one he shall subdue three kings he shall speak pompous words pompous words against the most high and shall persuade and shall persecute the saints of the most high and shall attend to change the times and the law and the saints shall be given unto his hand for a time times and half a time okay so this is talking about the career of the antichrist this is daniel's version of that little horn that came up amongst the ten okay and so now we're getting the career of the beast okay now let's go to second thessalonians chapter 2 second thessalonians chapter 2 glory to god verse number 4 talking about the Antichrist all right who opposes and exalts himself above all that is God or that is worshiped so he sits as God in the temple of God showing himself that he is God so we know that the the beast is a kingdom it is a confederation of ten horns on those horns John saw ten crowns because these were ten Kings. It is a ten king confederation who are going to control the world. Then we also saw the second part of the beast, the human monarch. This is the man speaking great things, boasting, blaspheming God, making war with the saints. This is the man that's going to walk in the temple of God, sit on the throne of God and call himself God. That is the human part of the beast. But ladies and gentlemen, hold on for a ride. There is a third part of the beast. And unless you understand the third part of the beast, you cannot understand what is restraining the beast are you ready good let's break it down let's go to Revelation chapter 17 we're going to begin reading 
at verse number seven. Listen to this. But the angel said unto me, talking about John, why did you marvel? I will tell you the mystery of the woman and the beast that carries her, which has seven heads and ten horns. Footnote. This is the same beast that we saw rising up out of the sea in Revelation chapter 13. Seven heads and ten horns. It is the same ten-horned kingdom that Daniel saw in chapter number 7. Glory to God. In Daniel, we saw four beasts rise up. One looked like a bear, one looked like a leopard, one looked like a lion, right? Then in Revelation 13, he said, The beast that thou saw having seven heads and ten horns, he was like a leopard, like a lion, like a bear. Those are the similarities and the characteristics of the ancient kingdoms will be, will be uh, uh, solidified and all come together in the Antichrist. And so now let's go back to Revelation 17, 7. But the angel said unto me, why did you marvel? Why are you tripping, John? You don't have to trip. I will tell you the mystery of the woman and of the beast that carries her which has the seven heads and the ten horns. This is verse number eight. Listen carefully. The beast that you saw was and is not and will ascend out of the bottomless pit and go into perdition. And those who dwell on the earth will marvel whose names are not written in the Lamb's book of life from the foundation of the world when they see the beast that was, is not, and yet is. Oh, that's deep. We're going to break it down about what he meant by was and is not and all of that. But I want to divert our attention for right now back to the first part of that verse. Verse 8. The beast that you saw was and is not and will ascend out of the bottomless pit. Ladies and gentlemen, there is an aspect of the beast that is in the bottomless pit. The question is, what is the bottomless pit? What is the bottomless pit. In the Greek, it is called the abusos or the abyss. Okay? 
Now, what is the bottomless pit? And this is a quote from the complete word diction study, word study dictionary of the New Testament. Dr. Spiro Zodiates. Listen to what he says. In Revelation 9, 1 and 2, 11, 7, and 17 and 8, 20, verses 1 and 3. It is a prison in which evil powers are confined and out of which they can at times be let loose. It is not the lake of fire as in Revelation uh, nor is Satan regarded as being cast into the prison forever but only to be so cast for 1,000 years. And we're going to read about that. So this isn't me making this up, ladies and gentlemen. The bottomless pit is a prison for demonic spirits. It's a prison. Okay, now, what do we mean by prison for demonic spirits. You know, when I was taking my revelation course, when I was at Trinity, uh, there, one of the extension course I took with revelation taught by the great D.A. Carson. And one of the things he told us, be very, very careful about creating doctrines around apocalyptic literature, which is a very important it. So, where else do we find this concept, this place referred to? Let's go to 2 Peter 2 and 4. 2 Peter 2 and 4. He says, for, for if God did not spare the angels who stand, sin, but cast them down to hell and delivered them into chains of darkness to be reserved for judgment. So God has a place that he puts fallen angels, all them spirits like that, and he chains them up. He restrains them chains of darkness to reserve forever. Okay? Let's look at our next text. Jude 1 and 6. Jude 1 and 6. Or Jude 6 because it's only one chapter. Listen to what it says. And the angels that did not keep their proper domain, but left their own abode, he has reserved in everlasting chains, uh, it reserved in everlasting cha chains, excuse me, under darkness for the judgment of the great day. There it is again. Angels being reserved in chains. But the most impactful scripture we find in the book of Revelation, chapter number 20, verses 1 through 4. 
I want you to read this with me, ladies and gentlemen, because it's very important. Verse number one, New King James Version. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, having the key to the bottomless pit. Point number one, the bottomless pit is a place of locked detention. Point number two, angels have charge over it. Let's read it again. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, having the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain in his hand. Now listen to this now. And he laid hold of the dragon, that serpent of old, who is called the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. Verse number three. And he cast him into the bottomless pit, shut him up, and set a seal on him so that he should deceive the nations no more till the thousand years were finished. Verse number seven. And when the thousand years have expired, Satan will be released from his prison. There it is again. Ladies and gentlemen, the bottomless pit is a prison. Because it is a prison, it is a locked place of detention. It is a locked place of detention that an angel has a key to. And the angel has the chain that restrained Satan. Now we're not talking about the beast right now. We're talking about Satan himself, the most powerful evil spirit in the universe. There is nobody more wicked and more powerful when it comes to the kingdom of darkness than Satan himself. And here we have one unnamed angel, not a legion, not five, not three, not two. We have one unnamed angel with the key to the bottomless pit, a chain in his hand, who by himself restrained Satan. Not Jesus. Not God the Holy Father and not the Holy Spirit. An angel. Now why is this important? The Bible says when that angel put Satan in the bottomless pit he set a seal on him. He restrained him. Satan couldn't bust a grape. His powers to deceive were, were sealed up 
and locked in an inescapable airtight where you his deceptive powers could not even get out to even deceive anybody. When Satan is locked in that bottomless pit for a thousand years and the Lord is ruling here on earth doing millennial reign, do you know it'll be almost like paradise again with no temptation, no death. It'll be like the devil doesn't exist. And for that thousand years, he won't exist. Yet he will exist. He's not out of existence. He's just off the earth, locked in an escape-proof prison designed for demonic spirits. Now, if Satan, the chief principality and power, cannot escape from the bottomless pit, my question is, how then is the spirit that is also in the bottomless pit that John, that the angel told John? Let's go back to it. Revelation chapter 17, verse number 7. The angel said, why did thou marvel? I will tell you the mystery of the woman and the beast that carries her, which has seven heads and ten horns. The beast that you saw was and is not and will ascend out of the bottomless pit. Ladies and gentlemen, if he's in the bottomless pit, then how does he get out? How did he get in there? Who restrained him? The answer is obvious. The angels who have charge over the bottomless pit. The same angel that grabbed Satan, his boss, and threw him in there, locked him up, set a seal on him, is the same angel, this Antichrist, with it. this spirit that's going to get an Antichrist, he has to go through the same guy. Now, ladies and gentlemen, let's go back to 2 Thessalonians. Now, when pre-trib was coming up with their doctrines, what did they do? Pre-trib said, oh, who's restraining the Antichrist? They didn't go to Revelation 17. Revelation 17 would have told them all they needed to know. Told them where the Antichrist is. Told them he's in the bottomless pit. We find out what the bottomless pit is. The bottomless pit is a prison. If the spirit that's going to get in the Antichrist, the thing that John wouldn't have known on his own, the angel had to tell him there was another aspect of the beast that John couldn't see because at that point he was, he was locked up in the bottomless pit. That's why the Bible said he was. In other words, he was active in the earth realm prior to John's day, but in John's day he was is not, in other words, inactive, locked up in the bottomless pit, but in the future shall ascend out of the bottomless pit. Well, how does he ascend out of the bottomless pit? Does he have his own pass key? He got his own code? He got his own beeper? You know, he that uh, 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 Lucifer come bust him out of the bottomless pit? You know, they, they do a jailbreak? Like like Papillon and escape. 
How does he get out of there? He bribes one of the angels? Of course not. He's in prison. Now, when Preach Rib was coming up with that theory, why in the world did they not use the information in Revelation about where the beast comes from? Why did they not tell you there's three aspects of the beast? A man, a kingdom, and a demon. The man cannot become the Antichrist until the spirit that's in the Antichrist, that's in the bottomless pit, is let out. Ladies and gentlemen, pre-trib doesn't use any of the information that the Bible explicitly gives us about the restraint of the Antichrist. No, what they do is they built a theory not using the material that the Bible has, but they jump over to Genesis 3 and take you to a passage that has nothing to do with Antichrist, nothing to do with eschatology, nothing to do with the beast, nothing at all. They take it, they, 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 they go there, right? Then they go to Isaiah 59 and try to use a King James bad translation of a verse to try to make, say, see, the, the, he'll lift up a standard. And it don't really even mean that. Then they go to John and say, see there, he, uh, 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 John called the Holy Ghost he. And, and Paul says it's a he. They go through all of those contortions to create a doctrine that the he of Thessalonians chapter 2 is the Holy Spirit. And Paul never said it. Well, Paul doesn't say it's an angel either. But so what do we have to do when we apply precept upon precept, line upon line, and we run our references and scriptures? We don't go to you should be going to Genesis, Isaiah or St. John. You should be taking yourself over to the book of Revelation where the Bible explicitly talks about where the Antichrist will come from. And you cannot understand what is restraining him unless you factor in the mystery that the angel revealed to John. He said, John, guess what? The beast you saw, he locked up. He's in the bottomless pit. Now, if he's in the bottomless pit, then wouldn't it be logical to factor in that the prison which he's locked up is what's restraining him? 
with now, 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 now I, I, I'm really, I'm not, I'm not trying to be facetious. I'm not trying to just talk about nobody. But you would think, like Dr. Walvor, Dr. Pentecost, Dr. Ryrie, uh, Hal Lindsey, and John MacArthur, and all these other dispensations, all these Darbyites, all these pre-trib people with all them degrees and all that stuff behind their name. For the life of me, can you please tell me why they would not? Tell you the truth about the Antichrist being locked up in a bottomless pit, the spirit that's going to possess him. And then why wouldn't they use that in factoring in their theories? So what I did, ladies and gentlemen, the two top pre-trib theologians at the time, because they're both going on to be with the Lord, Dr. John Walvoord, the Chancellor of Dallas Theological Seminary, which took over after Lewis Berry Schaefer passed on. Glory to God. I wrote him. I talked to him on the phone in the 1990s. And I said, listen, yo, this is where your theory is wrong. He says, I need to send you a paper. He says, send it. I sent him the paper. He read it, talking about he can't follow my reasoning. One of the things he said, you haven't properly understood what is meant by the Holy Spirit shall be taken away. In other words, just as it was given on the day of Pentecost, it will be removed in the same fashion. I said, well, that's fine. You pre-tribs who teach that, you teach that. Okay, fine. I can show you where the Holy Spirit came. I got scriptures to prove that. We can both see that. But find me the scriptures that reverse Pentecost. Find me with the scriptures that say it'll be taken away with a mighty wind. Well, I got the scriptures of Joel chapter 2 and Acts chapter 2. We got our scriptures. We can show what he was given. Find the scriptures that said he would be taken away. Crickets, because there are none. Now, ladies and gentlemen, why is this important? Pre-trib says, since the he is the Holy Spirit, which they have no scriptures to prove that, they use, uh, we went over the scriptures they use. You don't have to take my word for it. Get, get a pre-trib book and you look it up yourself. Don't take, look, do not take my word for this. You research it. This is what they base that on. Now, because they have taught that the he of 2 Thessalonians is the Holy Spirit, there are some spin-off doctrines that come from that. Number one, that the Holy Spirit will be taken from the world. The Bible never said that. They're basing that interpretation off of making the he there the Holy Spirit, and Paul didn't say it was the Holy Spirit. So they teach that one thing, the Holy Pentecost will be reversed. They have no scriptures to prove that. None. They say it. They write it up well in their doctrine. They make a lot of philosophical reasonings behind it to support it. They, the problem is they just don't have no scripture. Pre-trib is a highly theological, philosophical position that doesn't have a lot of scripture to back it up. It's a bunch of reasoning, ladies and gentlemen. I then, after I wrote Dr. Walvoord, then I wrote Dr. Pentecost. He was the one who wrote the book, Things to Come. That is the, the Bible for pre-tribulationism, for dispensationalism. Not the only one, but 
trust me anybody that knows knows that studies this stuff they would know the names Pentecost and Walvoord trust me they do I said this uh, Dr. Pentecost listen you cannot substantiate this of course he disagreed but he he couldn't refute what I was saying as a matter of fact, Dr. Walvoord in his letter to me said, angels can be restrainers. I said, well then, why don't I see that in your work? You don't say that in none of your books. You don't say that in one place. Angels can be restrainers. You're only saying it now because I confront you with the evidence and the Bible speaks for itself. You cannot argue against the scriptures. I'm not the one who is saying this. The Bible is saying it. Well, let's look at another place where the Bible talks about this. Let's go to uh, Luke chapter 8, verse 31. Let's start at verse uh, 26. Then they sailed to the country of the, the gatherings. I mean, Luke 8. 26. Then they sailed to the country of the Gatherings, which is opposite of Galilee. And when he stepped on the land, there met him a certain man from the city who had demons for a long time. He wore no clothes, nor did he live in a house, but in the tombs. And when he saw Jesus, he cried out and fell down before him with a loud voice and saying, What have I to do with you, Jesus, O son of you, Jesus, Son of the Most High God, I beg you, do not torment me. For he had commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man, for it had often seized him, and he was kept under guard, bound with chains and shackles. And he broke the bounds and was driven by the demons into the wilderness. Jesus asked him, saying, What is your name? He said, Legion, because we be many demons had entered him. And they begged him that he would not command them to go out into the abyss. Now, when you read this in King James, now the reason I want to read, I want to read the same because that was the new King James. And I messed up because I wanted to kind of surprise you. But this is what it says in verse 31. And they besought him that he would command them not to go out into the deep. The deep there, ladies and gentlemen, is the abyss. Now here we have a gospel narrative. Jude, First, Second Peter, Revelation, and Matthew. All speaking to the same truth. That demons know what the bottomless pit is. So this can't be denied. This is what the Bible actually says. Now, this isn't theology. I, I'm not, listen, I ain't giving you no ology, nothing. We're just reading the scriptures. Now, Preach Rev says that he there, it can't be nobody else with the Holy Spirit. Now, let me read to you what Dr. Pentecost says in his book things to come I'm going to read to you what it says of why they came up with 
why it had to be the Holy Spirit. Okay? Number one, I'm reading you from the book. This is the reference book. Write it down. You can go to the library and get this book. Read it yourself. Call Dallas Theological Seminary and ask them, do they know what the book Things to Come is? You think this man is not respected to what J. Dwight Pentecost? Call down to Dallas Theological Seminary. Don't, don't take my word for it. Call him. Things to Come, page 262. I am reading from this. This is what it says. By mere elimination, the Holy Spirit must be the restrainer. All other suggestions fall short of meeting the requirements. The second thing he says, the wicked one is a personality and his operations include the realm of the spiritual. The restrainer must likewise be a personality and a spiritual being to hold Antichrist in check until the time of his revealing. Mere agencies or impersonal spiritual forces would be inadequate. Okay. To achieve all that is to be accomplished, the restrainer must be a member of the Godhead. He must be stronger than the man of sin and stronger than Satan who energizes him. In order to restrain evil down through the course of the age, the restrainer must be eternal. Ladies and gentlemen, now didn't that sound? It, it, it sounded official. It sounded like it had authority. But each one of those points is unequivocally wrong. Listen what he says. He starts his first statement out by saying, "By mere elimination, the Holy Spirit must." be the restrainer. All other suggestions fall far short of meeting requirements. Here's my comeback to that. The argument begins with the statement by mere elimination. See, that's how he sets his argument. However, angels were never included amongst the ranks of the eliminated. Point number one. They didn't include angels they gave y'all stupid stuff. They said the Roman Empire was the restrainer. No, that don't work. Satan was in restrainer. No, that don't work. The Jewish kingdom was the restrainer. No, that don't work. Satan himself. No, that don't work. Uh, uh, the the church. No, that don't work. The church is imperfect. The Holy Spirit in the church. Oh, it gotta be that. That's the only one. They went. They knocked down. Six possibilities that were never possibilities in the first place to make their argument on the seventh one, which they have no scriptures to prove. Let me read my comeback again. The argument begins with a statement by mere elimination. However, angels were never included in the ranks of the eliminated. By angels not being considered, the argument starts out on a falsy basis. Clearly, all biblical possibilities were not examined or covered. Thus, a false 
pretense that all qualifying possibilities had been eliminated. He didn't tell you about Revelation in the uh, 17. He didn't tell you that the beast comes out of the bottomless pit. He didn't, they didn't even go there. They didn't even mention that. So what are they talking about by mere elimination? They didn't, they didn't even consider the thing they should have considered. Nor did they eliminate the thing they should have considered. They just didn't do it. And it's in the Bible. I didn't put Revelation 17 there. Okay. This is, look, listen to the next one. The wicked one is a personality. And its operations include the realm of the spiritual. The restrainer must likewise be a personality and a spiritual being to hold Antichrist in check until the time of his revealing. This is my response. Angels are indeed spiritual beings, hence personalities, whose operations are in the both physical and spiritual realms. Though angels are normally unnamed, they are referred to always in the masculine gender. Hmm. That's right. In your Bible, angels always referred to in a masculine. If angels can restrain Satan, then restraining a satanic subordinate such as the Antichrist obviously is no problem. The third premise. The restrainer must be a member of the Godhead. Stronger than the Antichrist and Satan who energizes him, in order to restrain evil down through the course of the age, the restrainer must be eternal, not limited by time and space. Again, unequivocally wrong. Each one of these arguments is wrong. Holy angels restrain demonic principalities. In Daniel chapter 10, we're going to cover that later. And even Satan himself, who is the ultimate expression of evil in existence. Although the angel is holy, he is not a member of the Godhead. We seen clearly in Revelation chapter 20 an angel restraining Satan. That angel is not a member of the Godhead. That's a criteria pre-trib said they had to meet. That was absolutely false. Who told Dr. Walvoord and Dr. Pentecost that the angel had to be a member, that the restrainer had to be a member of the Godhead? They made that up. That's not in the Bible. We clearly see an angel can restrain Satan. And that angel is not a member of the Godhead. That is a lie. And this is what, they, this is what they're basing pre-trib on now. Got people thinking that the Holy Spirit has to leave from the earth and take the church with them before the Antichrist is revealed. And they based it on 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 and they have no Bible to back that up. I told you, if you listen to this teaching, this is going to change how you see uh, 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 end time prophecy. This is another one said. In Revelation 12, Michael and his angels fought against the devil and his angels. And the text explicitly says that the devil was not strong enough. And that was one of the things that Pentecost said. 
the restrainer had to be strong enough. And the only one strong enough was the Holy Spirit. That's not true. The Bible clearly says Michael was stronger than the devil and his angels. C. Clearly angels are indeed strong enough to restrain Satan and obviously any satanic subordinates. However, though angels are immortal, they are not eternal. Remember, that's what Pentecost said, that the restrainer had to be eternal. That's not true. These restrainers that restrain Satan, that fought against Satan, glory to God, who bound Satan up, are finite beings like us. They're finite meaning they had a, they had a beginning. Okay, they're not infinite. They're finite. They're immortal. They're going to live all throughout eternity, but they had a beginning. They're not eternal. Okay? So eternality is not an issue. It's not a requirement. They, like Satan, are recreated finite beings. In addition to this, the premise that the restrainer needs to be eternal to restrain evil down through the course of age is also faulty. The forces that oppose Satan's heavenly rebellion only needed to be present since the time of that rebellion, not all, return, not all uh, eternity. Prior to the rebellion, there was no manifestation of evil to restrain. So that's right, sin started in heaven. It was a rebellion up there first. Okay? Before the point of the rebellion and on, holy angels were present. But since they are spiritual beings and immortal, they aren't hindered by time or space. That was another thing that Walvoord didn't say. They can't be hindered by time or space. Well, angels aren't uh, hindered by time or space. Evil is not an eternal phenomenon, but came into an existence through Satan's heavenly treachery. Angels are also, are also numerous enough to check each demon and outnumber them by a two to one ratio. This is at least implied in Revelation chapter 12 verse 4 and explicit in Daniel 10, 13. Theoretically, no matter in the universe, no matter where in the universe, angelic evil exists. There's enough godly angels to check them. In that sense, not even omnipresence is absolutely necessary. The three reasons why Paul used the masculine gender in Second Thessalonians. Number one, we don't know the names of holy angels except for Michael, Gabriel, and Lucifer and the authorized scriptures. A clear example of this can be found in Judges chapter 13, 17, and 18 which says, And Manoah said it to the angel of the Lord, What is thy name? That when thy sins come to pass we may do thee honor. And the angel said unto him, Why askest thou thus me my name, seeing it is a secret? You didn't know that, did you? Angels' names are secret. NIV translated this way. It's beyond understanding. In other words, the names might as well be secret because you can't say them anyway. It's beyond your understanding. God obviously didn't feel it was necessary to reveal their names to us. Two, angels are always referred to in a masculine gender. Paul's use of he is appropriate. Number one, you don't know the angel's name. Number two, angels are always referred to in a masculine anyway. All right? Uh, Schofield Reference Bible, 
page 1291 at the bottom. If you have the Schofield reference, you can look at it. The word talking about angelos is always used in the masculine gender. Though sex in the human sense is never ascribed to angels. Okay? The use of the masculine pronoun, he, is in harmony with the rest of the scriptures concerning angels. Verse 6, now you know what withholds. But check this out. Then he goes to the neuter. What? Okay? Ketcho. Withholds. To hold down fast. Very applications. Means to hold down. Means to restrain. Seize. Stay. Take. Withhold. Now, this is what the Theological Dictionary, the New Testament, says. It's that voluminous, uh, uh, like 12-volume set Theological Dictionary, purple in color, by Dr. edited by Dr. Kittle. This is volume number 2, pages 829 and 30. This is what it says. Talking about Ketcho. It said it is also used in a bad sense of holding illegally, holding in prison. Rather along the same lines, it means to prevent an evil person or power from breaking out as one imprisons criminals to protect society against them. This mysterious apocalyptic passage with its reference to the first to a neutral and then to a masculine restraint which holds back the last great outbreak of ungodly forces has been much discussed. We must regard the two as identical. It refers to the man of sin. Verse 3. More recently it has been seen that the concepts may have mythological background. This may explain the combination of the neuter and the masculine. See, they really don't know what the neuter and the masculine. I'm about to give you a reason why it's the neuter and the masculine. Because, just follow this. The, the, the mysterious ungodly force which will be let loose just before the end, the mystery of iniquity, verse number 2, talking about Second Thessalonians, takes concrete shape in the anthropos. It, verse, which is verse number three, the man of sin, and therefore the ketcho, which does not have to be a historical magnitude and might be an angel. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, I'm not the only one saying this. Dr. Kittle is saying it as well. This might be an angel. But what the theological dictionary of the New Testament does not do. See, they say the neuter and the masculine are the same. I'm saying the neuter is because the bottomless pit is a place. And not a person. That's why he says, now you know what, what's, what's withholding the Antichrist is the bottomless pit because that is a place.
The he who now restrains is there because the angels have the keys and the restrainings of the bottomless pit. So when Paul used what and a he, it makes sense when you say, aha, there's a demonic aspect of the beast that comes up out of the bottomless pit. This ain't Dennis Woods making this up. I didn't make this up, ladies and gentlemen. This is good stuff. Now, let's go to Daniel chapter 10. And we're going to wrap this segment up. Daniel chapter 10. Beginning at verse 1. In the third year of Cyrus the king of Persia, a thing was revealed to, unto Daniel, whose name was called Belshazzar. And the thing was true, but the time appointed was long, and he understood the thing and had understanding of the vision. And in those days, I, Daniel, was mourning three full weeks. I ate no pleasant bread, neither came flesh nor wine to my mouth, neither did I anoint myself at all, till three whole weeks were fulfilled. And in the four and twentieth day of the first month, I was by the side of the great river Hedekel. And I lift up my eyes and look. Behold, a certain man, masculine pronoun, clothed in linen, whose loins were girded with a fine gold of opaz. Let me switch to the. Let me switch to the um, NASB. Verse number five. I lifted up my eyes and behold, there was a certain man dressed in linen whose waist was girded with a belt of pure gold of that upaz. His body was like beryl. His face had the appearance of lightning. You know all these people that talk about they seen angels? When the last time you ran into something whose face looked like lightning? Trust me, if you've seen one of them in a the dark alley, you, 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 you'd kill yourself getting away from him. He had the appearance of lightning. His eyes were like flaming torches. His arms and feet like the gleam of polished bronze. And the sound of his words were like the sound of a tumult. And now I, Daniel, alone saw the vision. While the men who were with me did not see the vision, nevertheless, 
a great dread fell on them and they ran away to hide themselves. Footnote. Daniel said, the guys that was with me, they didn't see this. But they felt the presence of this being. And just him being there scared the mess out of them and they ran for their life. Okay? Verse number eight. So I was left alone and I saw this great vision. Yet I had no strength was left in me. For my natural color turned deathly pallor and I restrained, I retained no strength. But I heard the sound of his words. As soon as I heard the sound of his words, I fell into a deep sleep on my face, with my face on the ground. In other words, he passed out. Then behold, a hand touched me and set me trembling on my hands and knees. Now listen to this, ladies. This is deep. He said to me, O Daniel, man of high esteem, understand the words that I am about to tell you and stand upright. For I have now been sent to you. And when, and when he, look at that masculine pronoun, has spoken his words to me, I stood up trembling. And then he, masculine pronoun, talking about the angel, said to me, do not be afraid. For from the first day that you set your heart to understand this and on, humbling yourself before your God, your words were heard. And I have come in response to your words. But the prince of the kingdom of Persia withstanding me for 21 days. Then behold, Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me. For I had been there, for I had been left there with the kings of Persia. Now I have come to you to give you understanding what will happen to your people in the latter days. For the vision, it pertains to yet the future. So when he had spoken these words to me, I turned my face to the ground and became speechless. And behold, one, of, one that resembled and one who resembles, resembled a human being was resembled a human being was touching my lips and I opened my mouth and spoke and said to him who was standing before me oh my lord the result of the vision anguish has come upon me and I have retained no strength for how sh can such a servant of the lord talk with, with such as my lord as for me there remains just now no strength in me nor has my breath been left in me so Daniel was completely traumatized by this. Then the one with his human appearance touched me again and strengthened me. And he said, O man, high esteem, be not afraid. Peace be with you. Take courage and be courageous. Now as soon as he had speak, spoke to me, I received strength. And my Lord speak, for you have strengthened me. And he said, Do you understand why I came to you? But I shall now return to fight against the prince of Persia. For I am going forth, and behold, the prince of Greece is about to come. However, I will tell you what is inscribed in the writing of truth. There stands firmly with me against these forces, 
Now listen to this. Yet there is no one who stands firmly against me with these forces except Michael, your prince. Now, what I just read to you was an encounter with Daniel and an angel. This angel had the face of lightning, eyes of burning flames, mouth that sounded like a tumultuous crowd. His appearance of his body was like brass, face like lightning. The men that were with Daniel didn't see the being, but just his presence scared them off. Then the angel said, you know what, we heard you two, three weeks ago. But the prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me. Now the prince of the kingdom of Persia, ladies and gentlemen, that wasn't no, that wasn't ex our exerces. That, was, that wasn't Darius the me. That wasn't no human being. That was a principality and power that John, Paul talks about in Ephesians 6. That that's in high places, high heavenly places. And so, when the angel was dispatched from heaven with an answer, he got held up three weeks by this angel, by this demon, demonic principality of Persia. To such a degree, he had to call for Michael. Michael to help him out. Notice what he says. Verse 21, however, I will tell you what is inscribed in the writing of truth. There is no one who stands with with me firmly against these forces except for Michael. He didn't say the Holy Ghost restrains angels. He said no one stands with me except for Michael. Not the Holy Spirit. Not restraining. Listen, listen, listen to what it says in the NIV. But I will first tell you what is written in the book of truth. No one supports me against them except Michael, your prince. New English translate. However, I would tell you the first, which is written in the dependable book. There's no one who strengthens me against these princes, except Michael, your prince. New Living Translation. Meanwhile, I would tell you what is written in the book of truth. No one helps me against these spirit princes, except Michael, your prince. Let's look at that in Amplified. But I would tell you what is inscribed in the writing of, of truth or the book of truth. There is no one who holds with me and strengthens himself against these hostile spirit forces except Michael, your prince, the national guardian angel. Let's look at the, the NS, NASB. However, I will tell you what is inscribed in the writing of truth. There is no one who stands with me firmly against these forces except Michael. The Holman uh, uh, Bible. No one has the courage to support me against them except Michael, your prince. However, I would tell you it's recorded in the book of truth. Holy Spirit wasn't mentioned in restraining that. Angel on angel are always handled by angels. The Holy Spirit is our comforter as humans. He's along us as a paraclete, as a helper. Because we're human beings. Okay? He's our helper. But when it comes to the angelic realm and the demonic realm, not the Holy Spirit don't get involved with them. God has angels to handle that. Before I close... This is officially my longest podcast. I'm over two hours. But I'm about to close out. One of the spinoff doctrines is 
This is what Dr. Walvoort says. It is only insisted that the particular ministries of the Holy Spirit to the believer in this great present age, baptism of the Holy Spirit, indwelling of the Holy Spirit, spilling of the sealing of the Holy Spirit, filling of the Holy Spirit, do terminate. On this question, Walvoord writes, there is little evidence that believers will be indwelt by the Spirit during the tribulation. The tribulation period seems to revert back to the Old Testament conditions in several ways. And in the Old Testament period, saints were never permanently indwelt except in isolated instances through a number of instances of the filling of the Spirit and the empowering for service are found. Taking all the factors into consideration, there is no evidence for the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit in believers in the tribulation. If believers are indwelt during the tribulation, however, it would also follow that they are sealed by the Spirit and sealed being his own presence and the seal being his own presence in them since all of the spirit's ministries to the believer today depend on his indelible dwelling presence the absence of this prevents all dependent ministries to the tribulation saints now this is a doctrine that spun off from interpreting second Thessalonians as being the holy spirit now you see what these people have done, ladies and gentlemen. Dr. Walvoord just gave you a theological wrangling justifying that believers during the time that the book of Revelation talks about given the reason why they can't have the Holy Spirit because they teach the Holy Spirit has been taken away. As we just covered, they don't have any scriptures to back that up. That means they don't have scriptures to back that statement up. That means they don't have any scriptures to back up the fact that when you see the word saints in Revelation, that is not talking about some left behind Christians. It is talking about believers, the last generation of church saints. And the reason why pre-trib then looks at the book of Revelation the way they do and interpret it the way they do because it is their belief that the Holy Spirit is taken from the earth. Therefore, after the seven churches of Revelation 2 and 3, the church isn't mentioned anymore, so the church is gone. It is all based on the fallacy of teaching that the restrainer of 2nd Thessalonians chapter 2 is the Holy Spirit with all of this being said this is why when I teach from the book of Revelation I do not come to it with any preconceived pre-trib notions and how I interpret the book because I consider that system fallacious or wroth with fallacies. The book of Revelation was not given so people like Dr. Walvoord and Dr. Pentecost and Dr. LaHaye and Dr. Ryrie and Dr. Hal Lindsay and the rest of Jack Van Appy and the rest of these guys 
can tell you that the church is not going to be here and that revelation has nothing to do with the church. It is all based on the fact that they say that Second Thessalonians is dealing with the Holy Spirit and they have no solid biblical ground for that. They created the entire thing based off of that interpretation. Ladies and gentlemen, you have just entered the Revelation Revolution. Until the next time, until the next time, God bless you and keep you. Keep tuning in. It's going to get much better from here. God bless you. know the times answers to 25 essential questions on end time prophecy a powerful new book by dennis james woods the world is spiraling out of control at an alarming pace wildfires earthquakes hurricanes and floods devastate entire communities global pandemics kill hundreds of thousands of people social injustice unrest and lawlessness threaten our societies Political instability and the threat of war increase hostilities between nations. The birth pangs of distress are getting more intense each day. The question is, what do all these things mean, and where is this world headed? Unfortunately, at a time when people need answers the most, many do not know about the end times. You Must Know The Times, Answers to 25 Essential Questions on End Time Prophecy, is an eye-opening book that is specifically designed to educate readers on a wide range of subjects concerning the last days. This book will equip you to discern the times, in which we now live. You will learn what the Bible says about the signs of the times, the conflict in the Middle East, the tribulation period, the nation of Israel, the mark of the beast, the Antichrist, the Battle of Armageddon, the Rapture of the Church, the Return of the Lord, and many more essential topics. Discover the powerful message the Book of Revelation has for Christians, and the perils that await a rebellious world. The Lord warns, Look, I am coming like a thief. The one who is alert and remains clothed, is blessed. Therefore, it is vitally important that you must know the times. Be aware, be informed, and most of all, be prepared for things to come. Get your copy today of You Must Know the Times, by Dennis James Woods, at Amazon, iTunes, Google Books, Barnes & Noble, or wherever books are sold.